I've already been on record here talking about my dad and his wisdom a little bit. Uh, I'd like to jump in on some of his wisdom. Let me, let me uh, kind of highlight you on some of what I'm talking about. Dad used to have the ability, still has the ability, to take uh, what really is evident truth, wisdom, and to put it in real earthy kind of sayings, things that stick with you. For instance, one of the things he used to say is, every tub sits on its own bottom. Now think through that. Surely that's got to mean something. Uh, because on the surface you go, uh, and? Well, what, it was one of the ways he would teach us as ministers under him uh, that you need to make sure that you get the context of the situation. Uh, lifetime, uh, life often for us, we try to reduce into these nice little uh, truths that are true everywhere, and sometimes we have to be able to kind of apply them into certain situations. Every tub sits on its own bottom. The context is different. Uh, another one that I heard him say, this one is uh, one of those that might make you scratch your head a little bit. To a man with a hammer, all of the world is a nail. Think about it. If you want to follow up on that, I'll try to do that with you later this week. I'm not going to do it this morning. I had another friend, a mentor in the ministry, who used to say this. A preacher needs to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So you can decide which of those two camps you're in today and where we're going to end up. Here's one I want to throw at you, and actually this is kind of the gist of the whole sermon today. If you need to leave early, I'll give you the saying and you can make it work for you. Uh, A brick makes a terrible crutch. I expected that, so let me spend the next 30 minutes explaining what I mean by that, all right? Uh, We're coming again into Luke 7. Here's the deal. When we come to this passage of Scripture from Luke 7 all the way through Luke 9, Luke continues to bring to the lips of people in the story of Jesus Christ here this basic question. Who is this guy? We find it as we work through. That fall out of my Bible or did it come from above? Manna from heaven, it says. Stop while you're ahead. Um, In this section, Luke's gospel, he brings to the lips of people this basic question. Who is this guy? As we find Jesus is full front center of stage of what Luke is trying to get across to us in this gospel, there are those people that come to the surface here who are not really sure who he is. We saw that last week with John the Baptist. He sends a delegation to Jesus, and they say to Jesus, John wants to know, are you really who he thought he was? In other words, who are you? We're going to see it again as we go forward. Well, we saw it last week as we go forward with his disciples. He calms the sea. And on their lips, we find these words, this question, who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Luke has been very careful now for seven chapters to prepare us for the question. And it's the question that drives home for us today. Who is Jesus really? It'll be on the lips of Herod. It'll be... Answered on the lips of a guy who is possessed by a demon as the demon speaks through him will get the clear, definitive answer. Jesus is the Son of God. But it's interesting that the demons know that, but people can't seem to get that. Simon Peter is going to finalize it for us in chapter 9 when Jesus says, Who do people say that I am? And he'll come to the final, ultimate conclusion. You are the Christ of God. You're the Messiah. You're the one who we've been waiting for. But getting to that 
is a little problematic. And so today we pick up another one of these incidents. It's in chapter 7. And and it actually uh, involves two people or some groups of people. Jesus now finds himself being invited to a Pharisee's house to eat. While he's there, a woman comes in, and she's not a Pharisee. As a matter of fact, she's totally on the other end of the spectrum, as we will see. Uh, And so the Pharisee identifies her as somebody who doesn't matter. But in the process of that, he makes a determination on who Jesus is. Well, actually, he starts off by making a determination on who Jesus is not, as we'll see in just a few moments. One of the things that we must get a handle on in this question of who Jesus is. And as it relates to us as the storytellers, as we're working through Luke's gospel, remember one of the things I just want to keep driving home is that we have a responsibility to step out of the walls of this church into a community full of people who are wondering who this guy really is. And we need to be thinking about how we do that. What I want you to see today as we work our way through this is that your religion can cause you to miss God. I want to pause and I want to let that sink in really well. Because the reality for us is that uh, often we let our religion take center stage and and we just kind of slip into a religious way of thinking as opposed to a... a, Well, let me say it this way. Uh, The Christian life was never designed to be a religion. It is a relationship with a living God. Actually, I didn't say that right. It's not a living God. It is the living God. Our relationship with God himself through his son Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is a living, vibrant thing for us. But that's hard. It's hard with relationships. And so it's really easy for us at times to just kind of tie into these uh, pieces of our religion. That's the brick part that I'm talking about. A brick that is a brick is useful. If you go outside some of our buildings here, you'll find just right across the breezeway here that we have an entire wall there that's made up of bricks. Those bricks are good for walls, but they're terrible if you broke your leg and you need help walking. You can't take one of those out of its intended purpose and somehow make it do something it was never intended to do. And that's the picture as we get into this message today. These pieces of our religion in and of themselves are valuable. But when we take them out and we try to make them do something for us they were never intended to do, they become problems for us. And they may even cause us to miss God. So we want to be careful. We want to be aware for signs of slippage in the relationship. I'll come back to that in just a few moments. But let, let's look at this passage and read through it. And maybe it will start coming home for you a little bit. In Luke chapter 7. We're going to pick up reading in verse 36. But we get the context here. It's after John the Baptist sends that delegation. And Jesus answers to all of that. Pick up in verse 36. And here's what we read. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. 
This is a good time. Let me just stop reading for a second. This is a good time to insert yourself into the story. A lot of times we approach Scripture and we just kind of read over the top of it and it's just the information passing through. Uh, We need to do better than that when we come to to read Scripture, especially this where it's a genuine, real-life story out of Jesus' life and and we we can see it. And so put yourself into that picture. Put yourself in Jesus' place, for instance. And you're sitting there and you're in this uh, what could be a hostile environment and, uh, and this woman comes in and she begins to do these things to your feet. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd be a little bit uncomfortable with that, okay? If I am happen to be eating lunch with you today, please don't do that at lunch, okay? I, I get, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. Now, I know that there are cultural things that were part of that that make this okay, but still, there's got to be that part of it. As a matter of fact, put yourself in the person who sat next to Jesus while this was going on and tell me you wouldn't be kicking that lady going, hey, that's not appropriate. You need to do that some other time. Get into the situation and recognize the depth of what's going on here. And so we pick up reading again in verse, uh, what, where did I stop? 38. So 39 says, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself. All right, now here's where we get the question. Who is this guy? But actually he doesn't ask it that way. He's already made up his mind who this guy Jesus is. And so he says it this way. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. In other words... It's not a question of who he is. It's his answer to that question. And he says, whoever he really is, we know that he's not a prophet because surely a prophet would know this dirty woman and what she's doing to him. Pharisees. Churches are full of Pharisees, you know. Let's look at this. We'll come back to the passage again in a little bit, but let's let's look at a couple of things. I, I want you to see here that Um, this guy misses it when it comes to Jesus. Here he is, one who is charged in his position as a religious leader in the life of a nation to be able to recognize God and the things of God. And somehow, in the very presence of God, he misses it. Let me tell you something. That shouldn't shock us too much because churches are full of that same thing happening right now all across America. People having the opportunity to go into an audience with a living God, we just miss it. And he misses it not just because, well, maybe I'll just say it that way. Here's a guy who is trained. He is a specialist. He is one of the religious leaders of an entire nation of people. And if we get back into the background of why he is what he is, it'll help us to understand the whole point of my message today. Our religion can get in the way of us encountering the living God. This guy is a Pharisee. The Pharisees come about sometime in the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the record in the New Testament. And during that time frame, the children of Israel, the people of Israel, uh, are suffering through a series of national setbacks. That's probably an understatement. But in the process of that, these religious people decide they need to have a people who are pure. If we were only pure in the way we handle our religion, then God would look on us with favor. The fact that we keep getting conquered by outside people and we can't become our own people anymore is evidence that God is upset with us. So it's a group of people who came to be known as the Pharisees rise to the surface and their whole thing 
is to get the people of Israel to go back to the law and to practice it with dogged determination. Keep the law. They were so intent on that that they helped God out. What I mean by that is they took, you know, we know the law as actually, uh, in count, uh, we find it in Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy, part of the Pentateuch there. Uh, and it's that part in your, you know, when you read through the Bible every year, those of you who do that, you get to Leviticus and you go, ooh, I can skim this. In Deuteronomy where you're reading stuff going, I don't get this, man, I'm so glad we live in the New Testament time, we don't have to do all of this. Well, all of that stuff we might say, kind of simplistic, but we might say it boils down to the Ten Commandments. Well, the Pharisees, ten, ten was just not a good enough number. So they took the Ten Commandments and they expanded it to 613. It's a lot easier to keep 613 than it is just ten, I guess. But that's the way religion tends to do. All of that was tied to the one driving emphasis for them, which was so that we can be a pure people, so that we can live at a level that pleases God, so that maybe we can get out from under this foreign oppression. In the terms of this message, I'll say it this way. They began to set up these building blocks. Really, the better term is they were religious constructs. They were pieces of the machinery that helped them to handle religion. That's where this guy's coming from. Notice what that machinery does for him. Those building blocks now become weapons because he uses that background to figure out who this woman is. You notice how he identifies her? What's the word that he uses to identify her? Sinner, just like a Pharisee. But not only does he identify her with that, his religious construct, the brick in his wall, now becomes used, or now is used to identify Jesus. If Jesus is willing to let a sinner touch him, wait a minute, let's stop there for a second. What is the implication of that? Holy people don't let sinners touch them, at least not in public. And we know that because he looks at Jesus and he looks at the woman and he decides in his head she is who she is. Therefore, he can't be who some people say he is. If he was a prophet, he'd know who she is and what she's doing is wrong. Using a brick often becomes an excuse to use it as a crutch and it just doesn't work. Flesh that out for you in just a second, but let me look at something else here. Here's another question. The first question that we're dealing with here as it relates to him is how did he miss it? Well, he missed it because his religious background got in his way. We find that also, by the way, in verse 40, where he does finally identify him and he says, Teacher, there. I'll read the verse. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it teacher. So in his mind, he's answered the question, who is this guy? He's not a prophet, but he is a teacher. Here's part of the problem with our religious constructs and these building blocks that we like to hang on to. Usually, there's some real truth to them. It's one of the reasons we like them. It's because there's truth in it. 
But the problem is we take that truth and we push it beyond what it's intended to be done or to be used with, and so we use it like it's a crutch, and it just doesn't work. Jesus is, in fact, a teacher. But he's more than that. He is a prophet. The guy missed that part of it. One more step, and then I want to flesh this out, okay? So let's try to get all of the stuff out on the table, and then we'll start working with it a little bit. One of the things that he does with this is he just flat misses who Jesus is based on those two statements. But nestled into his thoughts, we find a key to understanding what's going on. He defaults to judgment two different times. He judges Jesus. He judges the woman. And all of that grows out of his background, which is little more than religion by this time. And he extends that to his guests. You see that? Actually, we hadn't gotten there, I don't think. So look with me to verse 49. We have this extended discussion that Jesus has with Simon, the Pharisee. But in verse 49, after he has talked with the woman, and we'll come to that in just a little bit, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Verse 49 then says, Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, here's the question again, who is this? Who even forgives sin? Question for you. Who do you think would be the dinner guests at a Pharisee's house? Sinners or Pharisees? Now, I don't want to know who you're eating lunch with today because that might tell me something about you. These people that are surrounding this Pharisee, Whether they're Pharisees or not, we don't know. We just kind of have to read that into the text, which is always dangerous. So let me just say it this way. If they weren't already Pharisees, they seem to be making good progress towards getting there by the end of this story. Because the way that question is actually worded is, it's not really a question looking for the right answer. It's a question that is tinged with, who does he think he is saying that he can forgive sins? So that pharisaical judgmentalism slips into the dinner guest also. Stop. Let's spread out what's on the table for a second. Here's the essence of what we've just talked about. This guy models for us the danger of religion when it comes to seeing what God is doing. We might even miss Jesus himself in the process if all we have is a nice, neat, ordered kind of religion to walk us through. Here's a good truth for you. The Christian life is never, ever designed to be a religion. It is a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. Here's the deal about relationships. Relationships are hard to maintain. You want good proof of that? Yesterday was my wife's birthday. If I had forgotten her birthday, I would be up here with a black eye and in bandages. Well, not physically, but maybe emotionally. Let me take it off of me and let's put it on you, okay? Guys, if you missed Friday being Valentine's Day, you're in deep trouble. I can't help you much. I tried to help you a little bit last week. Can't help you much with that, all right? But at, at Valentine's, 
I will bring it back to me for a second. Um, you know we are going through wedding preparations in our family. Just so you know, Teresa and I have been married a long time. Okay, it's not us. That's already taken care of. Our daughter is planning on getting married June the 4th. The 5th, that's what I thought. June the 5th. <laughs> I can't wait for June the 6th. You know why? Because everything seems to be about wedding in our family these days, all right? I should have just done what Teresa's dad did. He offered me, I'll just give you some money if you'll just run away and get married. Well, she's the third of three girls. He knew what it was going to cost him. He knew the hassles of it all. He offered me money, just take her, run away, and get married, okay? I should have done that with Lauren. I didn't. So we got wedding on the brain at our house all the time now, okay? Now, here's the deal. Wedding on the brain at our house also means wedding in your pocketbook at our house. And so when Valentine's Day comes up, now, you you hear what I already told you. Valentine's Day was Friday. Teresa's birthday was Saturday, okay? The double whammy. Now, years ago, some of you already told this. Years ago, I bought her one shoe for Valentine's Day and a matching shoe for her birthday. It's great. Okay? I thought that was clever. She did not. She still does not. The next year, I had planned on doing it a diamond earring for one and a diamond earring for the next one. She didn't want it anymore after the shoot, so that's good. Okay, so anyway, here's the deal. Back to the relationship. We got wedding on the brain at our house. It's Valentine's Day followed by birthday. And so we're driving down the road and we're talking about the fact that we really didn't do a whole lot for one another for Valentine's Day. Okay? We've been married over 30 years, okay? <laughs> and Valentine's Day is a big deal for us, okay? And my, for her, it's always kind of been a two-day celebration because we just lump them together and it's more about her than it's about me. I love that, okay? I'm good with that. And so we were talking about the fact that we didn't do as much as we normally might because we got wedding in the pocketbook stuff going on. And she made this comment to me, and I thought, that's gold for me to hang on to. She said, if you'd have not done anything, that probably would have hurt my feelings. You don't have to do a whole lot. Just remember. And you know what that is? That's a one year in advance heads up for you guys. Okay? Relationships require work. Sometimes they require money. But money doesn't overcome the lack of work. Get what I'm saying with that? I can give her a thousand gifts, and if I treat her like she's not even there, it doesn't mean anything. Relationships are hard work. And that's the difference we find in this guy here and what we're going to find with the woman here in just a couple of minutes. He doesn't have a relationship. He doesn't even know who Jesus is, and he's not willing to look at that because his religion, the brick in his wall that he's holding on to, doesn't allow him to see that because he, he only sees Jesus relating with this sinner woman. And it gets in his way, and he can't see. And so the hard work of relationship with a living God for us often gives way to the ease of dead religion. That makes sense? Now, I'm sure Spencer's back there going, where are you in your notes? Man, this is not in any of these slides, okay? Just stay with me, Spencer, sorry. 
we so easily default to three things tied. Now, this one is in there. Three things about religion that get in our way. It's the stuff of religion, it's the words of religion, and it's the activities of religion. Now, okay, I want to see if I can hang some meat on that uh, bricks make terrible crutches thing. Let's talk about the stuff of religion. It's easy for us to default into a whole level of thinking that lets us just have religious stuff and then we feel good about it. But there's no relationship to that. Here's a case in point. Actually, this one kind of takes that idea and turns it a little bit because sometimes we also often say and also say uh, if we avoid certain stuff, uh, then our religion is safe. I served the church for 20 years uh, down in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. And one of the things that uh, was a great blessing for me as pastor there was to watch that church as it began to get outside of the walls of the church and then out into the community. Because as we started to do that, we started seeing people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and be radically changed in the way they handled their lives. And this one family especially we reached. Now, this guy was one of the muckety-mucks with city fathers and government and all that kind of stuff, and he controlled large budgets for the entire city. Uh, And somehow, somebody in our church knew him, led him to know Jesus Christ as Savior, brought him in, his his wife and his two daughters. We baptized the whole family, and they plugged into the church. And it was an amazing thing to watch these people just fall in love with Jesus and fall in love with his work. And so one day, his wife, Yoli was her name. She came into my office and she said, Pastor, um, we got to do something about that parlor. Now, here's the way that church was laid out. Now, those of you who are on the uh, committee who came to see me, y'all didn't get to see this part of it. Y'all got to see what she had done with it. But um, that parlor was right next to my office. It was where the brides got ready for weddings. Okay? It had gold velvet wallpaper. You know the kind I'm talking about? The kind you expect Elvis to stick his head out of? kind of. And then it had couches that were, some of them were kind of gold colored and uh, the carpet was nasty looking. I don't, I don't do colors really. And it was just, def- the ugliness of the room defies description. Okay, does that describe it well enough for you? Yoli came into my office. She hadn't been in our church forever. She didn't know all of the stuff that happened in there, you know. So she came in, she said, Pastor, can we got to do something about that parlor. I said, I, I agree. I think we should. She said, let me take it on as a project. Now, I'm not, I wasn't nearly as old then as I am now and probably not as seasoned as I am now. I said, Yoli, we don't have the money to do that. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. You don't worry about that. I will take care of that. We will make sure that all, it won't cost the church a dime. Now, that should have been one of these radar things for me going, okay, what do you mean by that? Uh, I said, okay, knock yourself out. And over a period of a few weeks, she and a few other ladies in our church transformed that room. And all of a sudden, it was, wow. Until, see, everything was great with that. I would walk by it. I'd stand in the door and go, Wow. One of, the, one of the whole walls that she had had crosses, all different kinds of crosses on it, okay? Now, we've got a wall like that in our house, and I've seen it in some of your houses, okay? Uh, so I just stood at the door going, wow, I can't believe that this is the same room that was so ugly before. It would make brides sick before they walked down the aisle. 
it was, I don't use this word, okay? I had to surrender my man card. It was gorgeous, this room was. And everything was great until one of the little old lady Pharisees of our church walked by it. And she saw, she didn't see the transformation of the room. She didn't see the beauty of the room. She saw a wall full of crosses. And little Miss Pharisee Baptist said, What's this church coming to? We're going to be a Catholic church now? So I shot her. No, I didn't. I didn't. All you law enforcement people out there, I did not shoot her. I thought about it. Let me tell you something. That comment didn't just stop in my office. Before it ever got to my office, it went straight through the heart of Yoli. And it destroyed her. Now, here's part of my response to that lady, just in case you're wondering. If you're not aware of it, let me clue you in. The cross is a huge symbol of our faith. Some of you got them around your necks. We have one in the back, one of the, the focal point of our whole chapel over there is a cross. It is focal point in our faith. If it weren't for the cross, you wouldn't have a Savior. He paid the price of sin on a cross. By the way, none of those crosses on that wall were crucifixes. They were all just crosses. They were decorations. But in this little old Pharisee's mind, we had taken her little safe religion. She didn't know what to do with it. The stuff of our religion can get in our way of seeing what God is up to. Jesus is regularly in the process of changing people's lives. Let me give you another one of this real quickly. I got in a little bit of trouble. That shouldn't surprise you too much. Uh, I got in a little bit of trouble in one of my sermons when I was down in that church. Now, I'd been there for a long time. People knew who I was. Uh, They also knew, as I hope you do by now, my strong commitment to Scripture. But I got up, and I, I found a Bible that had been pretty much destroyed in the children's department. And I took it with me into the pulpit one day, and I made some kind of comment like this. Um, You know, many of us pick and choose what we like out of the Bible, and we hold on to that. It's kind of the same message we're talking about here in a little different way. And so I read a passage of Scripture, and I said uh, something, you know, Paul over here says that uh, we should not gossip. And I said, but we don't really believe that. And so I took the Bible, and I just tore that page out, crumpled it up, and threw it away. Oh, my goodness, people in there. Oh, he's sacrilegious. He's turned pages out of the Bible. And you know what my response was? Some of you are more upset that I tore a page out of a beat-up Bible than you are about the truth of what I just said. You see what I'm talking about? We take our nice little neat little religious stuff We pull it down and we hold on. We caress it because it makes us feel good when we're not feeling too good. And then we turn around and we smack somebody over the head with it and keep them from Jesus Christ. 
me give you an example of that. That's the stuff that I was just talking about. Let's talk about the words of our religion. <laughs> I've got just a few minutes, so this is one of those things where I'm going to light the bomb, and then I'm going to walk away, and then we'll have to... <laughs> the words of our religion can keep us from what God's doing and even recognizing Jesus. And it can keep other people away too. Here's one of the things that we hear in our Christian faith. One of those nice, neat little bricks that doesn't cut it as a crutch. God is in control. Now, I don't want to know if you've said that, and I certainly don't want to know if you said it today because I don't want to embarrass you or anything like that. I'm not declaring war on you or anything like that. I just want us to think about what we say. If we say God is in control, what are we saying, really? Let me put it to you this way. We've got, I see several law enforcement people here in our building today. If I walk away from here, no, let's don't put it on me. Let's put it on you. Let's say one of you has been drinking all morning at church. And you get in your vehicle and you drive away from here. And one of our law enforcement guys sees that and they pull you over and they say, you are not going to be able to go on with a free life because you have been driving under the influence. Failure to control your vehicle. Do you understand what that means? The inability to control what's going on there, right? The other side of that is if you're not getting stopped for failure to control, that means your vehicle is under your control. You turn the wheel when you want to. You control the speed the way it needs to be, all of those kind of things. Those are natural parts of driving. When you can't control it, then you get in trouble with the law. Everybody with me? Think about that as it relates to control. Here's the problem with us saying God is in control. It's a nice, neat saying when things are out of control for us. Oh, God's got it under control. He's in control. But take that and put it onto a family of somebody who had a tragedy happen in their life. My cousin's wife, at the age of probably 23, maybe 24, developed brain cancer and was gone passed away dead in less than a year. If God is in control, was he asleep when that happened? If God is in control, why didn't he control that away from me? We're going to have a funeral in this building on Thursday, probably 2 o'clock, for the two young ladies who were killed in a car accident a couple of weeks ago. If God is in control, where was he that night? You understand what I'm saying? Our words matter. And for people, especially as storytellers, as we step out of the confines of this building into a world with the good news of Jesus Christ, they're hearing tragedy. They're saying, if God is loving and in control, how could he let that happen? That's a good question. And our religious constructs, those little building blocks that we like to hold on to, are not good for crutches because they don't usually stand up for that kind of deal. It takes the whole picture. Lots of bricks together doing what they're supposed to do. So instead of God is in control, a better way to to describe is God is in charge. And he gives you the ability to make a choice in the middle of your situation. Your choice doesn't limit him, but neither does he put his thumb on you and drive you around and say, no, 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 you can't choose that. 
That's not choice for us. So I've lit the bomb now. You can figure out how all that fits into your life. I'm telling you, there's some truth in it that we need to be able to deal with because the words that we speak matter. Same idea, just take it, let's take it a little bit closer to home. Regularly, I hear and have for years, God is good. All the time, God is good. Really? Even when my loved one died at a young age, was God good then? So here's the truth part of it. Don't, don't I want to miss it, okay? Every one of those things has an element of truth. That's why it's good. If you're just saying God is good all the time and you're talking about his character, absolutely, you're exactly right. But usually when I hear that kind of phrase, it's because God did something good in my life. I got a raise. I got a promotion. I didn't get arrested. God is good all the time. But some people around us, maybe the person sitting next to you, I don't know how God good, how good he was to me today because bottom fell out of my life today. The Pharisee missed it with Jesus because his language and his background didn't allow him to see who he was sitting by. As I close, I want you to look at the woman here. Jesus says to this guy, after he makes judgments, Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. This is verse 40. Now verse 41. Jesus says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you got it. You judged rightly. And then turning, now I want you to listen to the language. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, here's how I envision that. Remember, put yourself in this situation. Here's how I suspect that went down because I've dealt with some women like this before. Religion has so marginalized them in life and religious people and Pharisees have continually called them sinners and pushed them away that when you make eye contact with this woman, she doesn't want to hold contact there. So Jesus looks to her and I see her make eye contact with him and immediately her her eyes go down to the floor. He looks to her and he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many. Here, don't miss this. Jesus does not let her off of the hook. He doesn't just wink an eye and say, nah, you misread her. Remember, he's looking at her through all of this. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven loves, or excuse me, but he who is forgiven little loves little. I suspect that it's just possible that that gaze of that woman that is fixed on the floor because now she's the center of the whole discussion 
Sinners don't like to be talked about by religious people at all. And Jesus has just let the cat out of the bag in this conversation. She has been forgiven much because of her love. I suspect that her gaze trails up and he makes eye contact with her again and he says, your sins are forgiven. And now instead of her being the topic of the conversation in the room, now she is just in conversation with him, the two of them. And he says the words that religion would never say to her, you're forgiven. There's the picture of how we get it right. Like her, we come to Jesus with no thought of whether we deserve to or not. We just come because of who he is. And we respond to him in love. And in love, he responds back to us. And he says, I forgive you all of the stuff that all of those other religious things and people would say keeps you away from me. Come into me and let's have a relationship that's based on heavenly love. There's the picture. And as a people of God, if we're going to get outside into this community, that's the message we take. Leave your religious garbage in the wall. Don't take it out into the streets because the people of this world are sick to hear of religion. But they cannot deny a loving Savior who looks them in the eyes and says, yeah, you got issues, but I love you. You're forgiven. Let's bow our heads. Question for you. Where is your relationship with Jesus Christ? Where are you with him today? Father, we just recognize that it's so easy for us to get lost and locked up in the nice, simple, no-brainer kind of religious activity that we default to instead of doing the hard work of walking with you every day. Meet us where we are as our prayer. Meet us in grace and mercy. Drive our hearts to yours. Fix our gaze on yours. And let us see the love and the forgiveness that comes through only Jesus Christ. That's our prayer now in Jesus' name.